Uh, today we're going to, in, in all the cliche of it, we're going to talk about God this morning for about a half hour. Um, but the, over the last three weeks, we've been doing a series on the doctrine of the Trinity. The predominant theme when you go to like pastor school is that people are really dumb and you need to dumb it down for them. And uh, I beg to differ. I think you're smarter than you look. Um, so, <laughs> good, see, you caught that. That's proof. Um, but there is, uh, uh, rather than uh, trying to uh, dumb down God or make God limited, we're going to try to open up ourselves to God in a way that helps us um, not grasp his infiniteness or not grasp how great he is, but really to understand that his greatness goes beyond um, the understandings that we might have. And so rather than just ignoring doctrine and saying, oh, I'm not a theologian, I just love Jesus, we're actually going to understand doctrine, especially in our uh, current culture, I think, as we move uh, into a more pluralistic world, a, a more global religious climate, understanding what we believe uh, becomes um, significant. For a long time in our country's history, uh, being a Christian is assumed because Christian or uh, church person was kind of the water that the fish swam in. It was who we were, and, and we're moving into a time when that is not who we are, uh, or who we are is shifting and changing in a global way. And so understanding what you actually believe, I think, is important. Uh, and sometimes you can just start reading the Bible. You could read the whole Bible. The word Trinity is not in there. Uh, the Trinity is explained in there. Uh, but understanding doctrine and this base doctrine, like we believe Trinity more than we believe Scripture. Like it is the number one in our uh, doctrine. We start with Trinity, then we go to Bible. We can believe the Bible because of the Trinity. Uh, and so that's uh, why it's so important. So if you are here for the very first time, this is going to be a great experience, I think. Uh, last week we talked about um, uh, Jesus, and the week before we talked about the Holy Spirit, and those are on the podcast or the website. You can check those out. And uh, you can just uh, subscribe to the podcast, I imagine. Um, so I subscribe to the podcast just to know when it's broken. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and because I listen to myself several times a week. But <laughs> that's not true. So the Trinity as a whole, just so we can grasp this, the Trinity is, and what we believe, is that God exists eternally. And these are three key theological points. As three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, those are the words that they use to describe themselves, and we use to describe them, and each is fully God, and there is one God. And so the important points in this is that there's three distinct persons in the Trinity, and that doesn't mean they're people like you and I are people. Those are the words that theologians have landed on after thousands of years. Uh, per three persons, each of those three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is fully God. All of God exists in each of those, yet there is one God, as the Bible teaches. Uh, and so we use the word one in a plural sense, uh, which really messes with your mathematics. But this is, well, if we could, the Trinity is one of our mysteries. If we could explain the Trinity, if we could explain God, then we no longer are uh, needing to worship God. He is no longer greater or beyond us or more infinite than us. I think that might be kind of where we need to begin when we talk about God the Father, because God the Father, in a real way, uh, is the dominant, in, in our minds, of the Trinity. God is God, and God is part of the Trinity as well. And so when we say, well, what is God or who is God, if we can narrow God down to just a definition, I actually think we have a, we have a problem. Like, I, I don't think you can actually say, like, here's, let me explain everything there is to know about God. Uh, God is uh, much greater than just an explanation. If you ever hear somebody who thinks they have the market cornered on God or, or think they know everything there is to know about God, someone who just graduated from, like, pastor school, uh, there is, it's, it's a problem they have that hopefully they'll get over. So instead of saying, here's who God is, because if God just said, here, let me, sh let me show you, like, let me, you can look at me. Um, what the reaction from you is death, all right? Uh, it's why uh, one of my favorite songs we sing in church, we don't get to sing it here because I make fun of it so much, but it's a, there's a chorus that used to, we used to sing, or the chorus goes, uh, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. And I call it the suicide song because you're like, 
If you actually saw God, like you're saying, I want, like, your reaction, it's over because God is so dominant and so holy and so bright. And so... In the Bible, Moses gets to see, uh, or not see, he gets to be close to God. And when he comes down the mountain, his face glows to the point that he has to wear a veil because people can't look at him. So people who even maybe get close to God, it's hard for people to look at those people because they've been close to God. Does that make sense? So if you actually saw God, so God can't be, we're not just going to, here's God, all right, because that would be death to us all this morning. Instead, God is compared to things. And, and I'm gonna, here's a list. Um, God is compared to these things. And if I read all these to you, then you'll fully understand God. Um, so first, God is described as an eagle. That makes sense. Eagles are regal and stuff like that. They're up in the air. Yeah, we're, oh, God is described as a lion. That's, oh, sorry, in Deuteronomy. Then in Isaiah, he's a lion. Isaiah 31, he's a lion. Isaiah 53, he's a lamb. What are we supposed to do with that? Right? Like God, is, he's either this or he's that. Uh, and then in Matthew 23, God is described as a hen. I would love a church to put that on their logo, right? <laughs> or a Christian school. There's yet Christian schools that are lions, Christian schools that are eagles. There are no like, my school is Tekoa Falls. We're now the screaming eagles. I don't know, they're angry for some reason, but... I would love to be like the Albany Bible College hens. Um, I would give money to that school, all right? Uh, in the Psalms, God is described as the sun. He's also described as the morning star or just a light or a torch or a fire. He's described as a fountain, a rock, a hiding place, a flower, a moth of all things, a shadow, a shield. And in the end of Revelation, God is described as a temple, all things in our physical world that we try to understand. Then, if that's not enough, the Bible describes him with human roles that we have. God's described as like a bridegroom, or a husband, or a father, or a judge, or a king, or a man of war, a builder, a maker, a shepherd, and a physician. And there's more than this, but this kind of gives us this weird contrast. God is a man of war, yet God is like a comforting shepherd. Or God is like a, a physician or a bill, but God is also like a judge. And God has these attributes that we struggle with because we try to grasp God and understand him. This is why we get into trouble when people start having arguments about God. Because a, a basis of an argument is that you have some semblance of understanding. And anytime, just to back up a sec, anytime the Bible teaches very clearly, Romans chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, both letters written by the Apostle Paul, he begins by saying, anyone who argues against the existence of God is actually arguing for evil. Uh, this is, like, so we don't, I don't um, have the same experience of an argument when I'm arguing with someone who's atheist or agnostic. Because their experience is that we're reasoning. My experience is that I'm having a conversation with someone who's advocating for evil because I don't believe in the, uh, because I believe what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches quite clearly in multiple places that an argument or a denial of the existence of God is evil, is foolish, is, it shows, and foolish is the meanest word the Bible uses, but it is really bad. It is not the same experience. And there are simple things that we can acknowledge. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about how everyone knows God exists, that he's eternal, and that he's divine. Everyone knows. And so the, according to Romans 1, and this is going to be judgmental. If you're here for the first time, I apologize. This, Paul was probably a mean person but, who wrote Romans. But uh, there are people who accept and live according to the knowledge of God. And then there are people who lie to themselves and deny the knowledge of God because the Bible teaches that everybody knows. This gets complicated because it sounds judgmental, doesn't it? But you can acknowledge that. I feel judgmental saying that. I feel like I'm going to lose my non-Christian friends where I say, well, there's people like me who tell the truth and people like you who are lying to themselves. Uh, but the Bible talks about God or the evidence of his reality being true and being real and being known. 
And so we end up in these conversations that are kind of complicated, and our pastors have dumbed everything down so we can't have intelligent conversations. Uh, if you want to believe in God, uh, this, here's, this is just an aside. This will be a free bonus. Um, if, if you are outraged, you know when um, big countries invade small countries? We talk about this all the time. And you get mad at that. Uh, then you no longer believe that morality exists according to each person. Like you believe there's a moral code outside of humanity um, because just a moral code based on ourselves would be that the strong eat the weak, right? Natural selection, that's how that works. And so it should be that the big countries get to take over the little countries. But being a Canadian, I don't believe that. <laughs> America, please, we love you, <laughs> right? But, uh, but there is this... There is this kind of um, moral that humanity holds to that's outside of ourselves, which we would say is evidence of the divine or evidence of God giving to us. So we can think about God today, but here's the fantastic news. You will never fully understand God. You can truly know God, like you know God. But you will never have the experience of knowing everything that there is to know about God. Which means, for all eternity, like the Bible teaches that at some day Jesus comes back, there's a judgment, some go to heaven, some go to hell. For all eternity in heaven, like billions of years from now, we will be learning and discovering new things or new greatness or grasping in a greater way who God is which means we would have discovery, which means we would experience joy eternally. That's what I think is heaven is like. Because you wonder, how can I be happy forever when I'm in a white robe, standing in a choir or whatever, you know, with heaven playing my harp? When the joy comes from, you're going to be discovering the greatness of God forever. Like, when you read through your Bible, and then you read through it again, and you read through it again, and you do that 70 times while you're alive, when you go to heaven, it'll be like you don't know anything. The Bible says this is, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Now, also, there are animals in heaven, and if, I don't think this is biblical at all, I think we're all vegetarians in heaven, but if we're allowed to fire up the Traeger, <laughs> when you put steak in your mouth, or because I want to be biblical, when you put a cucumber in your mouth, it will be like, when you put steak in your mouth, it will be like you've never tasted that before. It'll be brand new. And you'll chew it and eat it, and then you'll get another bite. Brand new. When you meet your friends in heaven, it will be brand new. Like you're hanging out for the first time. Like there's none of that baggage, the times when you messed up your relationship or, or the struggles that you had. Everything is new. This is the greatness of God explained in one word when things are, excuse me, when things are new. When God is able to every day, I don't think we, like you don't have to sleep in heaven, but Lord knows we're going to because it's awesome, right? So... <laughs> Uh, when you wake up, it's like it's going to be new. And every time you fall asleep, you'll wake up and you'll be like, that was the best sleep of my entire eternity. Like, I've been here for three billion years, and that was awesome, all right? This also means we only need one TV channel and one show, right? Which is pretty, and one episode of that one show, because every time you will laugh at those jokes, like, uh, I don't remember movies at all, so this is my experience every time I watch a movie, but uh, it will be fantastic. Uh, so let's talk about God then. Uh, understanding, though, that you will never understand God, that God is, I'm not going to be able to explain God, um, but we can lean into and know God uh, truly, even though we don't know God fully, all right? The two areas that people tend to um, fall into the worst errors is understanding that God is holy on the one hand, um, or you might have grown up thinking God is angry, or God is far, or God is scary. Uh, and on the other hand, God is love, or God is our buddy, or God is my friend. And people tend to, or even entire churches, or even entire like, ways of thinking, 
um, tend to lean into one or the other and neglect the opposite. Meaning this, there are churches that really lean into being holy. Um, and they neglect love, except they would never say they neglect love because they're loving by being whole. So these are people who would separate themselves from other people, Christians who uh, huddle up and build a fortress, and they're loving people by telling them that they're sinners going to hell. All right? This is, some of you don't fall in that camp because you laugh. Others of you are like, right on, right? Like, you probably err on the holiness side, uh, which is, this is a common thing. Like, uh, when you have conversations with people and you're constantly uh, focused on the holiness, the holiness, the holiness, uh, this is probably where you are. And then you have people that fall on the love side and they uh, think God loves everybody and, uh, and God is uh, for people all the time and God is like your buddy and, and you neglect the holiness. But you don't think you neglect the holiness because the holiness, what you're neglecting is the angry God because you're trying to explain to people he's not angry. And so you get people who just live however they want and are living with sinful tendencies or as I, what I would call slave to their sin or their addictions. And you're like, it's okay because God is love. And so we can do whatever we want and God still loves us. All right? These people tend to not wear shoes. Um, they, uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, but in between those two things, or an understanding of those two things, I think would help us lean into who God is and eventually worship God in a lot better. So let's talk about being holy first, all right? Here's what being holy is as far as God is concerned. God is absolutely separate from sin. Anywhere there is sin, God is separate from it. Whether it's an individual commission of sin, whether it's habitual sin, whether it's a systemic or an economic, like, the sinful way of things happening, God is separate from it. And God is devoted to seeking his own honor. God exists to glorify himself, which is a strange thing to say because we want to say God exists to die for us for our sins. But what that does is make God our servant. But God is not our servant. Now, God did. Jesus came to earth and he lived. And in the end of his life, he died for us. He served us. But his role in serving us is to glorify himself. Everything good that happens in your life is a gift from God to glorify himself. All right? He doesn't do things for you, for you. He does things for you to glorify himself. So God is holy. And God is incredibly scary. I don't know if you've ever been in a place that's like sacred, maybe something really historical or a place where there was great tragedy. And people tend to be quieter there. Or if you go into like a courtroom or a congress or ground zero, there's, not a, there's a sacredness or a holiness or a separateness to that space. And that is a little bit uncomfortable to us. We go into that and we notice there's something different here. But that's God's experience magnified and spread out. God is holy. God, the Bible describes him as the Holy One of Israel. In Psalm 71, 22, uh, the Holy One of Israel. Israel being the nation that God chose to describe himself. Later in Psalm 78, 41, he describes himself as the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 89, 18, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 1, 4, the Holy One of Israel. Catching this? Isaiah 5, 19, Isaiah 5, 24. Over and over and over. Like, you can Google this yourself, um, which I didn't. Um, but uh, there is, I read it in a book. But there is, uh, uh, I'm that old. There is this kind of understanding in the Bible. Let's flip to the next one, Isaiah 6, 3. In heaven, you'll know you're there because this is a song that's sung all day long. They, the angels uh, call out to one another and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is like, when we sang together and we'll sing together some more, it's not like heaven goes, oh, look at it, they're singing, now we have noise. Heaven is a wildly noisy place and this is the song that's being sung all the time because everything is new. 
And so when you get back to the beginning of this first line, it's like you're discovering the best lyric written in the history of everything. Because the angels have been singing this since angels were created. Not in eternity past, because angels have a created start. But this is the song, and every time it's sung, it's like we've never heard it before. And so the words holy ring out repeatedly over and over because the holy nature of God is so present and so overwhelming and so terrifying that it has to fill the space. First Peter, uh, Peter is one of the early apostles, a friend of Jesus. In First Peter chapter 1, uh, he writes this. This is what we do with this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning the grace you will receive at the judgment when Christ returns, meaning for forgiveness of your sins and the entrance into heaven. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Which is another repeated phrase in the scripture. You be holy because I am holy. And so for those who love the holy side, the call is quite clear in the scripture that as a follower of Jesus, your role is to be holy because God is holy. And holy means... You seek to be separated from sin or keep God separated from sin and seek to honor God in everything that you do. You keep entirely separate from sin. The holiness of God is terrifying because it calls us to a holiness that is completely unachievable. And we end up in this weird tension where we think, I've sinned a lot more than the rest of the people in my row at church today. Well, maybe not this row. <laughs> and then you sin because you've just judged everyone in your row. <laughs> and there is this terror that grips us because we believe in the holiness of God and we believe in the call to be holy because God is holy and we have this overwhelming knowledge that we're not i'd say that we're far from it when i describe like james tell me about yourself i have never said i'm holy because god is holy <laughs> it's it's never been my first reaction i live with much more of a mindset that i am fallen that i am a sinner that I am a messed up part of God's creation. And I am far from what I would describe as holy. When people are around me, they don't think, let's whisper because this is a sacred space. <laughs> Maybe you should. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. We need to work on that as a church. So Next week, we'll work on that. I'll wear a ring and you can kiss it. But... Because God is holy, we carry this tension because in that holiness, I don't know if you've ever said this, but we say like, I might, like, I don't want to mess up because I'm, I'm the example of God. My demonstration of the holiness of God is or may be the only understanding of the holiness of God that people have. And there's this insane pressure. People will say, I don't want to like, mess up my witness or mess up my testimony or my, my truth-telling about God. And so there's this massive pressure towards holiness that we put upon ourselves. Like our own holiness is something that God de de depends on or needs or, um, or even more scary, expects. And so when we get to heaven, there's this kind of tension because we really do believe in salvation and we really do believe that Jesus has provided the payment for our sin that our sin requires so that Jesus can bring us into the presence of God. And there's this terrifiedness that we're going to get close to heaven at the judgment or when we die or whatever, this reality, and we don't know what's going to happen because we know ourselves. 
because we know how far from the biblical standard that we exist. And so we have this really angry, scary God that we love a lot because the option is hell, but we don't know that we're going to measure up. Now, this is how you begin to feel if you lean on the holy side only. And then there's the other side, which is the love side. The love side we tend to move over to um, a lot of times because we grew up in the holy side. And we don't particularly like it. Or we had a really negative experience or somebody hurt us in a particular way. Uh, for me, it was a lecture in the back of the church. I can tell you the guy's name today explaining to me how terrible I was and how I need to respect God more in church. And I learned that church is a terrible place and I don't want to be there. And that made me not want whatever those people had. And so when you move over to the love side, a lot of times we end up totally escaping the holiness side. Here's what, I, I want to read some verses from the love side. This is 1 John. Uh, it's written by John, uh, a guy named John, who was Jesus' best friend when he was on earth, like literal best friend. Um, this is, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read this off the screen and then we'll talk through it a bit, all right? It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who, do, let me explain this for a second too. John liked writing in a confusing way. So you might want to bookmark this and read it again later because he's going to say things forwards and then backwards and you think you've gone down a rabbit hole and eaten a mushroom. So <laughs> verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how, that God may, sent, sorry, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Okay, now I'm going to read out of my Bible. Can I go to verse 10? In this is love. Uh, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So love is not that we love God, but God, love is that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a theological word. You can write it down and sound smart. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, which is where we started. Verse 12, uh, there's a shift here. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Uh, so no one has grasped the vision of God. This is what we began with. But you can start to see God a bit uh, in our love one for another. Verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love, God perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother... He is a liar. Let me back up. If anyone says, I love God and hates other people, he is a liar. I'm going to re retranslate that myself. For he who does not love people whom he, can, whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother and by inference his sister and all people. A lot of words there, isn't it? When you pull back, there's a couple of key phrases uh, that I think uh, focusing on might help us. The
if you're here for the first time, uh, this is the last week we're doing this. <laughs> um, every week uh, during the Trinity, we're doing a heresy of the week. And the heresy of the week is uh, put into the PowerPoint, and the people back there at the booth get to decide when is a good time uh, to bring up the heresy of the week. And they turn on the music, and if you haven't been here, you turn around and go, what are you guys doing back there? Get off the YouTube, you know? And you call it the YouTube because you're that old. Um, that's what I call it, so that's not an insult. That's more of a camaraderie statement, but... This week's heresy of the week. Heresy is something that the people believe that isn't actually true uh, or that has been presented as true at some point during her church history and, and then isn't, um, and, and isn't biblical, isn't doctrinally true. Uh, this week's is adoptionism. Adoptionism is this, that Jesus was an ordinary guy until his baptism. And at his baptism was this miraculous moment where God spoke and the Holy Spirit came down. And then at that moment, God the Father adopted Jesus and as his son, called him his son. And he gave him supernatural powers, which allowed him to do the things that he did, including resurrect from the dead. Uh, here's why that's a... Well, let me back up. Here's why that's kind of attractive. Because it takes away um, of the unity of the humanness and the divinity that exists in Jesus. If this is true, then Jesus is 100% human and 0% divine. He's only adopted divine. He only has supernatural powers, not divine nature. And so that explains away that part of Jesus being 100% human and 100% divine that is difficult because we know mathematically you can't have two 100%. So Jesus here, the problem is that Jesus here would be created, not eternal which would mean that the Trinity didn't exist in eternity past. And by, just by inference, and if you take this further, the Holy Spirit also was something that was invented later, and maybe is just the, the Spirit is the relationship between Jesus and God, not an actual physical person, which is why that word person in our doctrine of the Trinity is actually important. And so if we take that and we say Jesus is no longer fully divine and no longer fully human, then his sacrifice on the cross and his eventual resurrection is ineffectual for our salvation. And the worship of Jesus is actually doctrinally unsound and shouldn't be happening. So the scripture, although this heresy explains something that's a mystery, the better response would be to say that's a mystery that's unexplainable because we know that Jesus is divine because otherwise uh, his salvation is ineffectual and he, he was not just a superhero who got some powers when God decided to give them to him. Heresy of the week. All right, back to 1 John. First uh, John chapter 4. The first thing that we notice in that scripture repeated over and over is that God is love. God by nature is love. Uh, can we go back to the, I skipped the definition, but because I wanted to say that first, where it says God by nature is self-giving for the benefit of others. Uh, this is, uh, thank you, this is just the basic definition. If God's holiness is his separateness from sin, God's love is his by nature self-giving of himself for the benefit of others. God existence, God's existence is the giving away of himself for the benefit of others. Which means, when it says God is love, that's what he does, that's who he is, uh, that is God. And then our response to that is to love one another. To love the people, and the, the one another means the people of faith, the people of God. And so the love within a church should be overwhelming to the point that it reflects the love of God because no one has ever seen God. Like if you came to the Grove today and you've never seen God, you're human because no one has ever seen God. But you can see the love between people in a church and that shows you who God is. This is why it's such a tragedy to have churches where people don't love each other. This is why it's such a tragedy when you see or you visit or you attend churches um, that are more political or more agenda-based than love-based. 
the greatest thing? I don't know if it's the greatest. Among the top ten things that are awesome at the Grove is that people who have soundly different opinions or feelings or strongly held convictions, their priority towards each other is love. We have people here who watch that TV news station that you can't stand. <laughs> and some of you are naming different ones than other people. <laughs> some people watch the BBC. I mean, I don't want to name names, but I do love the accent. When we end up in a church where that's prioritized, then we lose the demonstration of who God is. This is why we invite people to church. It's not so that the professional Christian pastor can explain Jesus to them in a way that causes them to raise their hands and fall down and weep and become a Christian for the rest of their life. It's because if I, I want to show you who God is, and so come to my church because you'll see. And probably not see if you just come once. I need you to come like four times and learn someone's name. And then I want you to see what happens among these people. And I want to introduce this guy, who is so left-wing it's embarrassing. And I want to introduce you to his very close friend who's in a prayer group with him, who they have accountability with, who they hang out on a weekly basis and study the scripture together, who thinks like Jesus spoke just like that Fox News guy, all right? And these two guys have a profound love for each other that is unexplainable according to our culture. We have people here who only listen to Christian radio. And we have people here who don't listen to music. And then we have worse people <laughs> who have arguments on Facebook about rap music, right? <laughs> there is this broad spectrum, broad spectrum. <laughs> it's my accent. We have this broad spread of people <laughs> <laughs> that we are all held together by something. And that something is love. And that love is the demonstration of God. Now, when we take that back an extra step, here's what that really actually means. If we want people to know who God is, it's not the responsibility solely of the leaders. Because people expect, like, if I tell someone about God and they know what my job is, they kind of expect it. Do you understand what I mean? Like, yeah, you do that. But when a big group of people who are all different, who all have varying levels and different life stories gather together and actually support each other in real life, not just sit in rows and face forward together, but actually like, uh, get into groups and discuss their faith and help each other through crisis and pray for each other and serve each other in, in times of need, then that becomes the demonstration of who God is in our community. God doesn't live in some building with a steeple on top. God lives in the community and is demonstrated by the love, and let me say this, not just the love that the Christians have for the community, by the love that the Christians have for each other which doesn't mean we don't love the community. Sometimes in our life, and I bet this is part of your story, it's easier to love the non-Christians than the Christians. It's easier for me to go to a secular concert than a Christian concert, or I can't play in church basketball leagues because I spend the whole time disappointed in, I want to say their behavior, not mine, but you know what I'm saying, right? The love for each other is the demonstration of who God is. And so we know God personally through the love that we experience from the other Christians and the love that we experience by loving other Christians. And so God being love, and just as a, an aside, love, this isn't reversible. You don't get to say God is love, so therefore love is God. That's not true, all right? A simple uh, proof, like you'll hear people say that, a contemporary Christian artist who's on your radio will say that, and it's terrible because I love burritos. I do not worship them, right? Well, I should not worship them, all right? 
<laughs> that's a joke, but <laughs> I don't worship my burrito. But there is, love can't be God, but God can be love because it's his nature and it's who he is. Now, I've painted these two pictures of God, and it's kind of like, now choose one, right? Like, the love God is nice, I choose him. The holiness God, he's all right, but he's kind of, I'm going to save him for the end of life, right? Like, when life is boring and I can't really do any fun stuff anymore, uh, I'll do the holiness God later. That's for me when I'm old. Uh, But uh, now that I'm young and I like doing funny stuff, we're going to stick with the love God, because the love God is going to forgive me for the stuff I pull, right? And as a pastor, that's kind of dangerous. This is the tendency that we want to lean into. Jonathan Edwards, who's this fantastic uh, revivalist preacher from American history during the great American revivals, uh, before there was TV preachers and all that kind of stuff, he explained the holiness and the love of God as being understandable only in the Trinity, which is why the Trinity is so important. If we want to know what holiness is, a simple definite, a simple understanding, sorry, that holiness is a view of the Trinity from the outside of the Trinity. From where we stand or where we can have a perspective on that. And then love is the perspective of God that comes from inside the Trinity. Because in God and in the Trinity is perfect love because there is no fear and there is no punishment between the members of the Trinity. So love is God sorry. So love is the nature of God because we see inside the Trinity or we see from a perspective of inside the Trinity. And yet we can say at the exact same time that God is holy or holiness is the very nature of God. It's what he's made of because we look at the Trinity from the outside In our lives, what this means is that our holiness is separate, our separateness from sin actually moves on mission towards sin. Not to sin, but to save people who are there. Let me say that very clearly because this is the life of Jesus. Jesus did things that made him ceremonially and religiously unclean. Jesus did things that the Pharisees rightly called him out for being sin. Jesus did, according to their code, sin. But Jesus never sinned. Because Jesus' holiness affected the sin, the sin that didn't affect him. Now this doesn't mean, and I know people that they want to reach out to the stoners in the park and so they go and get high with them. No, all right? I have friends who are like, well, I want to reach people who aren't Christians, so I'm going to the bar, and it's called drunken witnessing. No, all right? I want to date these people that don't love God at all. It's called missionary dating. That's an actual thing. I've had actual parents of teenage girls say, we're letting our daughter date him because we think it'll be good for him. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, your kids are not dating my daughter, that's for sure. But there is this understanding that not that we move into things that the Bible calls sin. We don't commit sin. We don't have habits of sin because the Bible is very clear that people who are habitually sinful don't know God. But our holiness comes in contact with the sinfulness and the sinfulness is affected, not our holiness. You catch that? And then our love actually becomes a a divisive thing. People are actually become intimidated by the love that the people have one for another. And here's what I mean. You can, if you experience what it is to love or be loved, it puts you into situations where it's creates such a large amount of vulnerability that it's wildly intimidating. And there's just something in you that seeks to avoid that. Yet at the same time, you know this is everything you need right now. I think this is um, 
different for men and women, and in a, one way, it's just more difficult for men because vulnerability is something we spend our whole life avoiding and being dominant and strong is what we spend our whole life doing. And when we experience in the church the breaking down of the facade that we've built up to show how strong we are and allow ourselves that vulnerability, and then we experience love, it is the most terrifying thing in the world, isn't it? You don't have to say yes if you don't want to, but it, it, from experience, it is. And so our holiness pushes us into contact with people, and our love, while it is so attractive, actually makes people scared. That church is so holy that they love everyone there and everyone in our community, and yet they're so loving that it's terrifying, and I don't know what's going on, and I, something in me, while I need to be there, I need to avoid it. There's this combining of holiness and love in the Trinity that is, I think, the most beautiful demonstration when it's lived out by the church, lived out by the people of God, both within the church and on the perspective of the church from the outside. We're going to transition this morning to actually partaking in what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Or if you grew up in a traditional church, it's called the Eucharist. And what we believe about this is that there's, a, there's going to be a physical piece of a cracker uh, which actually signifies Jesus' broken body. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a piece of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. That's why it signifies it. And this material thing we're going to take in our hands, this common, ordinary thing, and then there's a little cups of juice and Jesus took what was a glass of wine. We don't do wine because we have people that struggle with alcoholism and that's not what we want to do, so we drink juice. And so we have a little cup of juice in order to honor the people here and to honor God in a little cracker. And it's this physical thing, and you're going to, uh, we partake in it because Jesus took the cup when, when he was done breaking the bread and passing it around. He said, this cup represents the new covenant which is established in my blood. And the new covenant being the new relationship that humanity has with God because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so when we come to the table that Jesus sat around originally with 12 and then only 11 because one left of his disciples. And he shared. And he told him, now do this together until I come back. And sometimes we think it's just like a ritual. It's a physical thing that we're doing. We're going to get up and we treat it like, like a buffet at Thanksgiving, like we're family. There's going to be a real temptation to stand in line. Don't. All right, because the people at the front are probably behaving and you don't need that. Just go around them. There's a backside to the tables. Just get to where you need to get. If you're uh, gluten-free, there's one up here with a little sign that says gluten-free. Uh, it's, it's like uh, so that everybody can participate. But there is this um, sense that we're just going to do something physical. But the reality is there's a spiritual thing that happens it's a physical act. We're going to eat a cracker and drink a thing of juice. But what we say is it's a means of grace, meaning God actually gives us unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing in this physical act. And so there's this going to be this union of something that's very physical. You're going to stand up and be in line. You're going to bump into other people because they don't think they should have to wait in line, right? And, and you're just coming around the table and getting things. You're going to see each other. You're going to greet each other and say hi or smile. But at the same time, you're going to have this sense that you're in a bit of a holy space and that something is going on here that's bigger than just eating crackers and drinking juice. And there's just going to be this weird quietness and whispering and we'll have the, some music playing so that noises don't disturb and things like that. But we're going to invite you. I'm going to pray and then we're going to invite you when you're ready during the worship and the band will come back out during the worship uh, to partake.
And maybe you need to pray a bit with God and talk about his holiness or talk about his love and then come up and take a simple piece of cracker and a simple piece of juice and experience the combination of something so physical and something so spiritual at the same time. And in that unity and in the love that you experience because you're taking this with a church that loves you, you will experience who God is. And we spent three weeks explaining the Trinity. And this morning, you'll actually know who God is. Let me pray for us. Our God, we turn to you with uh, an overwhelming awareness of your love for us because we know that we don't deserve it. We feel like if you actually knew us, God, that you would have made it, like you would have chose someone else. And in that, we're really just uh, put in a place where we have nothing that we can say to deserve it or earn it. It's just this weird, vulnerable place, God, where we admit that what we experience of you is such a gift of you and all the goodness in our life. And God, that draws us into you and we experience what it is to know God is holy. And God being so close to us and being so far from us. And so in these moments, we pray that you would, by your grace, your great mercy, in your love and in your holiness, forgive us of our sin that we run to, the passions that we had in ignorance before or even after we knew who you were and who you are and who you will be. And we ask that you would draw us towards the newness of you over and over again. May we experience communion this morning as if it's our first time. May we experience what it is to be among people who love us unconditionally like it's the first time. And may we experience God in that. We might never know everything there is to know about you, but this morning, God, allow us to know you in the love that we experience together. We love you, Lord. As your holy people, we love you. Amen.